Hebrews chapter 8, and you'll find that on page 1206, 1206. Now, this morning, we have reached chapter 8 of Hebrews, and we're about to begin a new section in the letter of Hebrews. And over the next few weeks, we're going to be diving into the Christological heart of Hebrews. We're going to be looking at big themes of sanctuary, of covenant, of sacrifice. But before we get there properly, it's good just to remind ourselves of where we've come so far. The writer to the Hebrews has been pressing home to us our need for a great high priest. One who could empathize with our every weakness. One who was tempted in every way but yet was without sin. One who can intercede for us before the throne of grace. One who is the eternal Melchizedek, the eternal high priest. And if there is one thing that the Hebrew writers wants us to get by now, it is this. We do have such a high priest. Look to me quickly at verse 1 of chapter 8. Now the main point of what we are saying is this. We do have such a a high priest. We have a high priest, and this high priest is Jesus. Jesus is our high priest. He is the one who can truly meet our needs. He is the one who is holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, exalted above the heavens. Jesus is our high priest who sacrificed himself once and for all for the sins of the people. Jesus is our high priest. Now for the Christians who first read the letter of Hebrews, this was a very important thing for them to understand, to get. Because those Christians were from predominantly a Jewish background, from a Jewish religion. And that meant they'd come from a religion that required there to be priests. And it was the job of these priests to continually offer sacrifices from animal sacrifices uh, during a ceremony in an earthly temple to atone, to make amends for the sins of the people. And this lack of a visible priest for these new Christians and lack of a visible sacrifice in a visible temple could well have caused them to doubt if their faith in Jesus as a high priest was sufficient. Was it enough just to have faith in Jesus? It could cast doubts in their minds that their eternal salvation, assurance, might not be as secure as they once thought. They could lack assurance. Now maybe that would describe some of us here today. I doubt there's many of us from a particularly Jewish background, but it's very possible, indeed probable, that there are many of us here today who would have at some point lacked assurance in our faith in Jesus. Is my faith really sufficient does it really make me right with God? Can it provide me the assurance of eternal salvation? Really? Is it enough? We may not vocalize these thoughts out loud, but our actions certainly betray our attitudes. We could have fallen into the subtle trap of trying to sort of somehow earn our salvation all over again by being a good person, by keeping all of God's law, because if I don't, then, well, maybe my faith isn't sufficient. Or maybe we have felt the need for a, a priest, an earthly priest, or a, 
pastor or a minister or, or someone to intercede for us on our behalf because we're just not worthy to come to God ourselves. You can have doubts. Is our faith in Jesus sufficient? And the writer of Hebrews wants us to know that our assurance does not rest on anyone on earth, not on anything anyone can do for us, but it rests entirely on Jesus, our high priest. Let's read the rest of Hebrews 8, and let's see what we can learn from God's word and why we can rest secure in our faith in Jesus. Hebrews chapter 8. Now the main point of what we're saying is this. We do have such a high priest who sat down at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven and who serves in the sanctuary, the true tabernacle set up by the Lord, not by mere human being. Every priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices. And so it's necessary for this one also to have something to offer. If he were on earth, he would not be a priest. For there are already priests who offer the gifts prescribed by the law. They serve at a sanctuary that is a copy, a shadow of what is in heaven. This is why Moses was warned when he was about to build the tabernacle. See to it that you make everything according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. But in fact, the ministry Jesus has received is as superior to theirs as the covenant of which he is mediator is superior to the old one. Since the new covenant is established on better promises. For if there had been nothing wrong with that first covenant, no place would have been sought for another. But God found fault to the people and said, The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they did not remain faithful to my covenant and I turned away from them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will establish with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my laws in their minds and write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbors or say to one another, know the Lord because they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest. For I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. By calling this covenant new, he has made the first one obsolete. And what is obsolete and outdated will soon disappear. Amen. This is God's word. Well, in Hebrews 8, the writer is laying foundations for us for what's about to come. And there are two things from God's word that teaches us why Faith in Jesus is sufficient. Number one, Jesus sees superior ministry as high priest, verses one to six. Number two, Jesus is the mediator of this new superior covenant, verses seven to verse 13. Two points. Number one, Jesus' superior ministry as high priest, verses one to six. And number two, Jesus is the mediator of the new superior covenant, Verses 7 to 13. Well, the first point, if you just move the slides on there, the first point, Jesus superior ministry as high priest. Look at them again at verse 1 and tell me where Jesus is just now. Where's Jesus? Jesus is seated 
at the right hand of the throne of, in, throne of the majesty in heaven. Jesus is seated. Now, why is that a big deal that Jesus is seated? Well, because it tells us that right now, our high priest, who is exalted to the heavens, is sat down because his earthly work is done. It is completed. It has been accomplished. It is finished. You see, Jesus, the Son of God, came to earth to die, to offer himself as a sacrifice for our sins. And Jesus accomplished that by dying on the cross. And as Jesus died, he cried out with a loud voice, it is finished. And when he breathed his last, the price for our sins, for our rejection against God, was paid. And it was paid in full. We just sang, Jesus paid it all. And the fact that Jesus now seated shows that Jesus' ministry as high priest is superior to the earthly priests because, if you turn with me to chapter 10, verse 11, just quickly, flip the page over. Chapter 10, verse 11, because see, the priests cannot sit down. Read with me chapter 10, verse 11. Day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. The earthly priests can never sit down because they have to keep offering sacrifices again and again and again and again to make right with God the sins of the people. They can never sit down because their work is never finished. But Jesus is seated because his work is finished. He offered himself as a once and for all sacrifice for our sins. A sacrifice that will never ever have to be repeated and now he sits because the work is finished you see this tells us our assurance does not rest on anything anyone can do for us on earth but our assurance rests on the finished work of Jesus Christ who is seated as our high priest second point why Jesus ministry is superior look with me at where he is serving verse 2 and who serves in the sanctuary, the true tabernacle set up by the Lord, not by a mere human being. Jesus is now serving on our behalf in the true tabernacle that is in heaven. Now, what's a tabernacle and why is this one true? Well, tabernacle basically means tent. You see, in the Old Testament, after God had led his people out of Egypt from slavery, they then spent the next 40 years wandering in the desert before they reached the promised land. And they lived as nomads, if you like. They lived in tented cities. And the tabernacle was effectively God's tent. This was where God came to dwell with his people. There's a picture of a replica of it there. This is where God came to dwell with his people. And there were priests who were serving this tabernacle offering sacrifices again on behalf of the people day after day, trying to take away the sins of the people so, they, so that holy God could come and dwell with an unholy people. That's what the tabernacle is. But this tabernacle, this was a, an earthly tabernacle. This was a, a replica. It was a copy of the true tabernacle that is in heaven. This tabernacle was a, a shadow of a heavenly reality. 
And this tabernacle was built by Moses. And he also knew exactly how to build this because this was to be a tabernacle that's a copy of the heavenly tabernacle. We see that in, in verse 5. End of verse 5, uh, Hebrews quotes Exodus uh, 25. which says, See to it that you make everything according to the pattern shown to you on the mountain. Everything had to be exact. It was all very meticulous from the outside of the tabernacle to the inside of the tabernacle. Looking at the furniture, the clothes they had to wear for the priests as well. Everything was very, very meticulous. And Moses was to make it exactly like the heavenly one because this one is a shadow of the true one. And the earthly priest served in this earthly tabernacle whereas Jesus, the true great high priest, serves in the true tabernacle that is in heaven. That is why his ministry is superior to those of anyone on earth. He serves in the true tabernacle in the heavenly realms when he's seated at the right hand of the majesty who is in heaven. Because see, this shadow of this earthly tabernacle has now disappeared. And the reality of superior ministry of Jesus has superseded the shadow of the ministry of the earthly priests. Now here is a clear word to any Christian who is in despondency or despair this morning. Our assurance does not rest, does not depend on any earthly priest to lead from the front because Jesus is serving for us in heaven in the true tabernacle. Our assurance rests in the perfect sacrifice administered by the perfect priest serving in the true tabernacle. That is why I'm not standing here in big fancy robes. That is not why I have a big hat on. That is not why I'm a priest. I'm a Christian. I'm a Christian just teaching God's word. I'm not doing anything special here. God's working through me doing something special here for his word, but I'm not interceding on your behalf because you can come to God directly because our high priest in Jesus is with God in heaven because he is God serving in this true tabernacle. Isn't that amazing? That our faith is grounded on him. That is where our confidence should rest. Third reason why Jesus' ministry is superior to that of the earthly priests. Jesus is the mediator of the new and superior covenant. Look with me at verse 6. But in fact, the ministry Jesus has received is as superior to theirs as the covenant of which his mediator is superior to the old one since the new covenant is established on better promises. Now, next question. What's a covenant? Well, a covenant is effectively a promise. It's a solemn promise. So it's not like, oh, when a kid says to his mom, I promise to tidy my room. Or when someone says, I promise to be there, but then doesn't show up. No, it's a solemn promise. Think more wedding vows. When a groom promises to his bride that he will be her husband. And when a bride promises to his groom that he, she will be his wife. I promise to be your husband. I promise to your boy, be your wife. I promise to remain faithful. It's that solemn vow that we take when people get married. That is more close linked to what a covenant is. It is a solemn promise. It's a promise between God and his people that he will be their God and they will be his people. And when God makes a covenant... 
he then instructed his people that they should live under the covenant in a way to please God, to honor him as God's covenanted people. And God gave them his law, God's law. Think Ten Commandments, if you like. God gave that to his people to show them how they should live as a covenanted people where God would be their God and he would be their people, okay? And if these people kept God's law under the old covenant, if they were faithful, then God would bless them. God would be with them. But if they failed to keep God's law, if they were unfaithful to the covenant, then curses would have come upon God's people and God would leave them. That's why we read in verse 9, it will not be like the covenant I made with the ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they did not remain faithful to my covenant and I turned away from them, declares the Lord. You see, when God made this first covenant with his people, there was a problem because there was something wrong with this first covenant because this first covenant could not bring about the perfect obedience that was required to keep this covenant from God's people. There was no one, not even one, who could perfectly keep God's law. And failure to do so meant that they were unfaithful to this covenant and the covenant promise was broken. But here we come to such amazing grace found in this chapter. Okay, we're talking a lot of Old Testament stuff here, a lot of covenants, lots of sanctuaries, tabernacles, some to come a bit academic, but I want you to see here how saturated this text is with God's grace. You see, when God's people in the Old Testament first broke the covenant, they deserved to die. They deserved for God just to completely wipe them out. But God is merciful. God is full of grace. And in this text, we see that God promises to make a new, better covenant. And the writer of the Hebrews demonstrates from the Old Testament the scriptural basis why the new covenant is superior to the first one. Look to me again at verse 8. And from verse 8 to verse 12, the Hebrew writer quotes Jeremiah 31, verses 31 to 34. This is the longest Old Testament quote in the New Testament. Now, Jeremiah was a prophet who spoke the word of God to God's people back in the Old Testament. And this section of this quote, this was taken from a section where God is promising his people future restoration. When he's promising his people future salvation. Despite the unfaithfulness of the people. That he will not cut them off forever. He will not wipe them out. Look at me at verse 8. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and the people of Judah. They did not deserve this. But despite of their unfaithfulness, because God is a merciful God, full of grace, he says, I will make with you a new, better covenant. And it's not going to be like the first one, where you're unable to keep the, God's law, unable to keep your side of the covenant. It says it's going to be a better one, established on better promises. Look with me at verse 10. This is the covenant I will establish with the people of Israel. I will put my laws in their minds and write on them their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. See, this new covenant is going to be a covenant that's going to transform them, not from the outside, but from the inside. 
there's going to be an inward transformation under this new covenant. When God will write his law on the hearts of his people, and he will be their God, and they will be his people. Now, when we read he's going to write God's law on their hearts, we're not talking here about memorization of Scripture. Uh, no, the Jews, uh, God's people back in the Old Testament, they knew Scripture very well. They had memorized it perfectly, but they had failed to keep it. You see, it's one thing memorizing Scripture, it's something different keeping Scripture, applying it to your lives. Now, what is meant here is that God is going to give his people new hearts. They're going to become a new creation in Jesus. We read in 2 Corinthians verse 5, If anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come, the old is gone, the new is here. All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ. This is entirely a work of God going on here, okay? This is not anything the people themselves are doing. This is entirely God's work that he is going to write on their hearts, his law, and he's going to give them a new heart. They're going to be transformed from people who can no longer keep God's law to people who are now able to keep God's law. From people who are dead spiritually to people who are now alive spiritually. To people who had a cold, stone heart to have got a new heart made of flesh. You see, before we came to faith in Jesus, we were completely powerless to keep God's law. We could not help but sin. Now, however, we have the power of God working in us who enables us to no longer sin but to live a life of godliness. Read that in 2 Peter. And Ezekiel chapter 11 says this, I, as God, will give them an undivided heart and put a new spirit in them. I will remove from them their heart of stone and give them a heart of flesh. Then they will follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. They will be my people and I will be my God. This is the new covenant, the better covenant. For we are now able to keep God's law for those of us who are in Jesus. He says in verse 8, These days are coming, declares the Lord. Well, now we can say these days have arrived. They arrived when Jesus Christ died on that cross. These days arrived when Jesus rose back to life three days later. And these days came to fulfillment. When, God, when Jesus was exalted to the highest heavens, where he's seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. And having previously warned us about the hardness of our hearts and warning us not to fail away, here the Hebrew writer proclaims to us that God has wrote his law on our hearts that we are now able to please him. We are able to obey him. We are now able to not fall away because of God's grace, because of what he has done for us through our high priest, Jesus, the mediator of the new superior covenants. Not only do we get a new heart, but look at verse 11. No longer will they teach your neighbors or say to one another, know the Lord, because they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. See, under this new covenant, not only do we get a new heart, but we can come to know God personally. See, the word know here is not just an intellectual knowledge of who God is. But it is a personal relationship with God. 
It's a personal experience of who God is, if you like. To know God is to personally experience God, to recognize him, to trust him, to obey him, all through Jesus, the superior high priest. Because when you come to faith in Jesus, you're coming to God himself. And if you know Jesus, then you know God personally and intimately. You're in relationship with him. Just think of that for a moment. An unholy people, plagued by sin, who deserve death, can come into a personal, loving, intimate relationship with the holy, pure God. Isn't that incredible? What grace we find in this new covenant. What grace we find in Jesus Christ that sinners such as us can come to know the awesome majesty in heaven, to know him personally. Do you know him personally? Have you come to know God personally? Not just know who he is, not just believe he exists, but have you come to know him? If you haven't, well, my friends, there is great hope in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because you can come to Jesus right now in faith and repentance of your sins, saying sorry to God for rejecting him. And you will come to know God personally through Jesus Christ. If you haven't done that yet, can I ask you why that is? What is holding you back? You have an offer here, the ability to be transformed from the inner heart. You have the offer here to come to know God personally. I'd love to speak to you about that if you've not come to faith in Jesus yet. I'll be at the door after the service. I'd love to chat to you about that. Or maybe speak to whoever brought you here this morning. They'd be delighted to speak to you why they have faith in Jesus and what you can have if you come to faith in Jesus as well. Because thirdly, here's perhaps the most mind-blowing thing of the entire covenant, verse 12. Third reason why this is a superior covenant. For I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. This is all possible of having a new heart and knowing God personally because he has forgiven our sins. The complete assurance of forgiveness of sins is written into the terms of this new covenant, this law. See, under the old covenant, forgiveness of sins could only be partly achieved by sacrificing again and again and again through the high priests. And even then, not all your sins could be forgiven. Not so under this new covenant. Because of our superior high priest Jesus, because of his once and for all sacrifice, because he's seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, because his work is finished, our sins will be forgiven forever. God chooses to remember our sins no more he wipes the slate completely clean. And we are now this new creation in Christ, able to know him personally. Notice with me again who is doing the work here. How many times do you see the phrase declares the Lord in this passage here? We see it three times. How many times do we hear the words, I will? This is God speaking. 
Look at verse 8. I will make a new covenant. Verse 10, I will establish this covenant. I will put the laws in, on their minds. I will write their, on them on their hearts. I will be their God. Uh, verse 12, I will forgive their sins. I will remember their sins no more. This is entirely a work of God. This is entirely an act of divine grace. There is nothing in us that deserves this. There is nothing in us that is able to achieve this by ourselves. We entirely need Jesus, our high priest, to do this for us. That is why we've got to come to him in faith and humble repentance. And if we do so, God is gracious. He will create in us a new heart. We will know him personally and he will forget our sins forevermore. Grace so marvelous, all sufficient and free, is more, more than enough to redeem and rescue me. The old covenant is gone. It's become obsolete. The shadow has disappeared. And the new, better reality has arrived. So your brothers and sisters, we can rest assured in our faith in Jesus because he is seated at the right hand. He has paid the full price for our sins. He serves in the true tabernacle and he is the mediator of this new and better covenant. One that's established on better promises. One when we are transformed from the heart. One where we know God personally and one where our sins are forgiven forevermore. That is where we find our assurance. Not in anything on earth, but in our high priest who is in heaven at the right hand of the majesty of God. Let's pray.